you have your Bibles, you can uh, grab it. We'll be in Mark 14, John 13, John 18, Isaiah 52, and then 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter, and then we'll end with John again. Um, if you want to know all my scriptures, we'll also be in Genesis 22 and John 1. Uh, now, Mark 14 for now, and then if you want to keep your finger in, in John 13 and John 18, uh, that is fine too. Um, I want to be honest with you, this, uh, this evening, I have a bit of a heavy heart. Uh, my eye itched. I'm not crying yet. My eye itched. Uh, but I uh, have a heavy heart this, uh, this evening just, just because the subject matter is, is really serious. It, just, it means a lot to me. And to be able to, uh, to have the opportunity to speak uh, during, during Holy Week to me is an honor and a privilege. And uh, to speak tonight on Monday, Thursday, knowing that we're not going to have a Good Friday service, uh, I thought it best to merge the two. Because to me, if you, if you don't have Good Friday and we just have Monday, Thursday, what are we really celebrating come Easter? And if you have Monday, Thursday and you have a Good Friday service, then you should be itching for uh, that, Easter, that Easter service. Yes, I, I kind of want Saturday to be a long day because we're anxious for Sunday and we're ready to get back to church because you know Thursday was somber, and so that's uh, that's that's my heart this evening as we begin to focus on uh, on this scripture and and we'll see what happens. I'm anxious for uh, for this evening, so uh, but I'm excited because if you've been here all week, uh, we'll open up in prayer here again in a second. But if you if you've been here all week, it's interesting because. We know God is a God who goes before us and also a God who comes behind us. And so I've been anxious just to get back in the sanctuary because we've had some incredible messages this week. But also know that, you know, that God's presence, although it was already here, there's more to come uh, this evening during this hour. And so uh, with that said, let's pray, then we'll dive into Mark 14. God, thank you for being a God who goes before us. You're already here. God, more of you is on the way. God, thank you that you are an inexhaustible fount of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. There's always more of you to behold, to receive. God, may we hear from you this evening. Would you speak now and move me out of the way? I pray I go as far as you allow me to go and, and no further. Would you give me the discernment to press in and the discernment uh, to know when to relent? God, I pray above all things you're glorified. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We're all going to have the, uh, the scripture on the screen this evening. There will be some images. In fact, uh, these images are from the movie Passion of the Christ. And if you haven't seen it, I can't encourage you strongly enough. Uh, come back Saturday. It is a powerful, powerful uh, film. And so if, uh, if you didn't bring your Bible, the, the scripture will not be on the screen. But there should be a Bible in front of you. And as I always say, if you don't own a Bible outright, take that one home with you. But if you do have a Bible and you just didn't bring it, then you can borrow these Bibles, but don't take them with you because I don't want to add to your collection of Bibles that just stay at your house. But you are welcome to use one, uh, and I encourage that as well. Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? We're going to stop here. And I want to start here with this question, or with this statement from Mark that says, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And this is where I want to start this evening, and, and why do I want to start here, and why is this important? If you go back to Genesis 22, 
when Abraham's uh, tested by God, sacrificed his son Isaac. And along the way, you know, Isaac, I guess the wise guy he was, says, Hey, uh, Father, where's the, uh, where's the meat for this sacrifice? Where's the lamb? To which Abraham responds, you know, the Lord himself, God himself will provide the lamb. In John 1, 29, when Jesus is approaching uh, him, John the Baptist says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why wasn't there maybe lamb at this meal? Well, because Jesus was the, the Lamb of God. So we're, we were discussing last night in our, in our small group kind of the order of Monday, Thursday. Like we know Jesus washed the disciples' feet, but when was that? Was it before, during, or after uh, the, the meal? You know, when did he call out Judas or let Judas know? And when did Judas get up and leave from the table? And when did Jesus say this and do this? What was the order? And so I want to go through just kind of quickly, and I want to try to go through chronologically the order of the events on the Monday, Thursday, or on that Thursday. We have the Passovers being prepared. Then we see that Jesus sits with the twelve, and then Jesus shares his desire to eat this Passover meal with the disciples. After that, Jesus says, I will not eat of this until I am in the kingdom with you. After that, Jesus' disciples begin to argue over who will be the greatest. From there, Jesus begins to show them a lesson of who is great among you. Let him be the servant of all. Then he washes his disciples' feet. After that, Jesus prophesies his betrayal. After that, the disciples sorrow, fill with sorrow, and they begin to question, is it me, Lord? Surely not I. After that, Jesus says, it's the one who dips this bread into the dish. It's the one who dips this bread into the bowl. After that, he shares the fate of the betrayer. And then Judas is the one who's identified. And right after that, Judas leaves the table. From there, Jesus begins to speak about how the Son of Man will now be glorified. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now God will be glorified. The Father will be glorified in me, and I'll be glorified in the Father. From there, Jesus then grabs the bread and, and begins to break the bread and serve the bread to the disciples, to the eleven who are remaining. After that, Jesus blesses the wine. Then he declares that he will not drink of the wine anymore. He will not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it anew in the kingdom of God with his disciples. From there, the disciples sing a hymn. Then they leave the room. And Jesus begins to, to speak about how all the disciples will fall away and to this, you know, Peter begins to say, Lord, no, 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 not I. I will not, even if all fall away, I'm ready to die with you. So Jesus prophesies Peter's three denials. And then Jesus instructs the disciples to go get swords. And then they arrive at Gethsemane. Okay, so, but I want, before we get to Gethsemane, I want to read from John 13, uh, just 1 through 17. If you're here this morning, we read this this morning or this afternoon as well. But we'll go to John 13 now. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to portray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Let me stop there. Who's, who is in control here? Who has the power here? I just read it. Who has the power? Jesus has the power, okay? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. I want to stop here just for a second. If you're familiar with 
kind of the way I, I like to, to, to preach. It's a lot of, we start, then we stop. We'll read a little bit, and then we'll chat a little bit. But notice that it said Jesus knew who he was. He knew he, that he had come from the Father, and he knew he was going back to the Father. Then he takes off his outer garment, wraps around his waist, takes the role of a servant, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. So it was knowing who he was, knowing his identity led him to serve. For how many of us are we so secure in, in, in Christ, our identity is so secure in Christ, so secure in God that it leads us to acts of service? Most of the time it's I know who I am and I know who you are and I'm a little more up here, you're a little more down here. So if one of us is going to be served, it should be me in this situation. However, Jesus, knowing who he was, led him to humble himself. No pride in this man, no ego here. Verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Then Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned uh, to his place, at his place at the table. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I want to focus on verse 16, where he says, I, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And a couple uh, chapters later, uh, John writes or records uh, Jesus saying, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. If the world rejects you, that's because the world rejected me. And so what I want to say this evening in, in, in terms of this verse, if Jesus didn't make obedience to God the trendy thing to do, the end thing to do, you and I will not be the individuals who make following Christ cool. We won't make it trendy. We're not going to make it hip. If people rejected Jesus, they will reject us. And my concern is how often are we so concerned with, we've got to give Jesus a makeover. Give him some skinny jeans and a plaid shirt, make him a little bit more of a hipster. Let's demasculinize Jesus. Make him a hippie version. Let's refer to God as, hey, he's the old man upstairs. He's like my grandfather that I want to sit on the porch with and just listen to stories. That's When this is our image of God, when that's our image of Jesus, the only reason we do that is so we can feel better about when we sin against Him. Because we want to construct Jesus in a new way. And we want to make following Christ cool. And some of us are so trendy. We want to make it pleasing to everybody. And that can't happen. If they hated Jesus, they will hate you and me for our obedience to the Father as well. Then we get to Gethsemane with the disciples and, and Jesus. And there's agony in Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is where Jesus begins to, to pray, Father, if there's another way, let there be another way. 
If I don't have to take this cup, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way than this way right now, then let's go the other way. Yet not my will, but yours will be done. There's a, uh, there's a medical condition. It's called hematidrosis. I don't want to say it again because I just got it right. Okay, but that, that's the medical condition. Hematidrosis. And it's the sweating of blood. This occurs when an, when an individual is in extreme anguish or physical strain. And that causes one's capillary blood vessels to dilate and burst, mixing sweat and blood. So when we read that Jesus was sweating blood or, or, or his sweat like blood was falling from, from his, his, his forehead or on the back of his neck. Now, this is a, a legit medical condition. But my question is, what though would put Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, what would put Jesus in such a state of anguish? What would put him in that in such a state of anguish? And when he's praying, Father, if this possible, let this cup pass. What does this cup mean? From Isaiah, Isaiah 51, 17 through 52, 12. I'm not going to read it, but you're welcome to, to, to take a look at it. God begins to, to, to talk about, through the prophet Isaiah, the cup of the Lord's wrath that will be poured out on God's enemies. So those who abhor God and the enemies of God, in those last days, God's wrath will be upon them. So if you are not in Christ, it's God's wrath that is, that is coming from you, according to the Bible. And I wish I could change that and make that more palatable, but that's, this is why my heart is heavy this evening. So I don't want to say these things, but it's, this is what this means. And so Jesus says, Lord, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass, referring to the cup of the Lord's wrath. We'll come back to that uh, here in a second from Isaiah. But John 18, while, he's, while he was praying this, we'll look at Jesus' arrest in the garden. So we'll go John 18, 1 through 11. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to them, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I want to stop there for a second. This is in the first six verses. I want you to get an Im- a mental picture of this. I want you to get the, the image of this. So a detachment of soldiers could be anywhere from a couple dozen to a hundred to three hundred or even a thousand soldiers. I don't know if it was a thousand. I would assume maybe a couple dozen. That's what I would think. But there's an at- a detachment of soldiers, a group of soldiers approaching Jesus And Jesus says, who is it you're looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. As soon as Jesus says, I am he, as soon as he says these words, every man there falls to the ground. Falls on the ground. Cannot stand before Jesus when he gives this revelation of who he is. When he says the very words of God, I am, people fall to the ground. Can't can't stand before him. And so again, if, if, if we're looking at who has the authority here, who does have the authority here? 
If these men with weapons and lanterns and torches can't stand in the presence of Jesus when he tells them who he is, who ultimately has authority here? And who has submitted to this authority? We'll keep going. Verse 7. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the, the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of these you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, or the high, high priest's servants, uh, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? There it is again. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? We go back to, to Isaiah and we focus on this cup. And what does the cup mean? What does the cup represent? Uh, Isaiah would tell us that it's the cup of the Lord's wrath. So when I look at Jesus in the garden, sweating drops of blood, I do not believe it's just the pain of the nail going through a hand, the pain of a nail going through a foot, which I, I imagine there's certainly there's anxiety there. What would be, bring Jesus to sweat, to sweat blood and to, to plead with the Father, let this cup pass from me? Yet not my will, but your will be done. Because Jesus surely is more has a greater understanding of the Lord's wrath than you and I do. So I believe that's what has Jesus in anguish. Not pain of a cross, but understanding the full wrath of God is about to be poured out on this man. We'll read now, we'll pick it up in Isaiah 52. We'll go 13 uh, through, um, through chapter 53. A bit of reading here, but we'll, we'll read it. This is, again, referring to the, the crucifixion. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So, he, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. I'm going to repeat that one in verse 10. Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, 
He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I want to stop there just for one second, because this term guilt offering, why would Isaiah include this? Well, if you go back to Leviticus 5, verses, I think it's 15 and, and, and 16, you'll see that what, a, what really dis, uh, displays and describes what a guilt offering not only is, but what is it for. And a guilt offering is for those who have sinned unintentionally. Okay, that's what the guilt offering was for. And so, of course, Jesus was the, the once-for-all sacrifice. But I do personally like that Isaiah would say that, this, that Jesus also, his, part of his offering was, was poured out as a, gift, as a guilt offering. So all of the sins that I commit, even if I'm unaware that I'm sinning, fully absorbed in Christ on the cross. Now, that does not mean that I can just go do whatever I want to do, and if I make a mistake, you know, God's grace will cover that. But certainly this should bring me to repentance of, Lord, if I've ever done anything. And if I'm unintentional about it, then, Lord, please would you forgive me. And God would say, absolutely, see the cross. Absolutely, see Jesus. Verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. Now listen, no one took the life of Christ. He laid it down. You don't take the life of Jesus. He laid it down on his own free will, knowing that he would take it up again. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The reason I wanted to focus on bringing some of Good Friday with Monday Thursday is because without the cross, I mean, I don't celebrate Easter the same way. The cross is God screaming His desire to have you, to be in a relationship with you, His desire to save you. I want to be honest with you because my default position is to believe, and maybe this is yours too, my default position is to believe that God is merely tolerating me. That He looks at me and He's frustrated with me, always. And maybe you can relate to that. Now look at my son, he's four months old, and I'm crazy about him. My little boy. I'll get teared up if I talk too long about him. But I prayed for him. I prayed for, you know, a healthy child, but... Between you and me, my wife won't hear this, but I was praying for a little boy. Maybe not this one, but I wanted a boy at some point. And God gave me that little boy. And I'm going to tell you, there's so much delight I have in that, in that little boy. So precious to me. Selfish as can be, but he's precious to me. And yet, I struggle to believe that God looks at me the same way I look at my, my four-month-old son. I believe God has all the grace and all the, the joy and delight in you, but He doesn't have that in me. Perhaps you feel that same way, that God has all the delight and joy for someone else, just not you. Or maybe you think, you know, I see the crucifixion, but that's, yes, that applies to me, but it's really for other people because, man, I can keep the rules. So maybe that's you on this side, but then over here on this other side, there's this, man, I've sinned too big, too majorly. That, uh, that, and that haunts me, and so I don't know sometimes if, if, if that sin, if this decision was covered in, in, in Jesus' death on the cross. 
But it's just as much self-righteousness that says over here, I don't need the cross, I don't need the atonement because I can, I can do it myself. I'm just type A, give me the rules and I'll do them. That's just as self-righteous as to be on this side and say, I've sinned beyond what the cross of Christ can even cover. So you've sinned bigger than what God can forgive. You're the one person who has sinned beyond what God is able to forgive and redeem. And the cross, Jesus having his beard ripped out, being beaten beyond recognition, laying his life down for those he loved, out of full obedience to the Father, we're going to cheapen that by saying, I don't know if he can cover this habit that I have. How dare we say that? How selfish can we be to say, no, 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 I've sinned beyond what, what God himself, what God Almighty can redeem and save. And the cross is God screaming his desire for you. Which my default position, again, me personally, there's this feeling that, um, that at times, that, that, that I'll say it this way, um, when I go have dinner with, with somebody, I do not like when they pay for my meal. Maybe you do. I, I don't. And I'll tell you why. Because I feel like in that moment, um, first of all, I can't order what I want to order. And I've now got to get like chicken fingers and water. But I also feel like at the table, I have to agree with everything they say. You know, I need to conduct myself in a manner worthy of them paying for my meal. That would justify why they would pay my meal. Right? That they would pay for, for my food. And so oftentimes in our relationship with God, there's this feeling of God saved me, but now I need to conduct my way to make sure that I appease Him at all times. And when I don't, and you can't, and then when I don't, I'm so disappointed in myself that I know God must be disappointed in me. So I'll just wait a couple of days to clean myself up before I can present myself back to God. All the while you're playing a game that it's not you who even cleans yourself up. You don't wash you. You don't clean you. You don't justify you. It's God who washes you. It's God who justifies you. And God does not regret saving those that He adopts and says, You are mine. I'm not ashamed to be your God. I'm not ashamed to call you my child. And God does not regret saving you. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, as we begin to, uh, to land the plane here. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul and Silas and Timothy say this, For God did not appoint us, and the us here is referring to those who are in Christ, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we not appointed to suffer wrath? Because the wrath that was due us, those who are in Christ, was fully absorbed through Jesus Christ on the cross. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he asks a question, or he makes a statement. He says, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. But then he says shortly after that, he asks them, do you understand what I've done for you? So that's my question tonight as we come to take communion, where, where 
we remember Jesus sitting down with the disciples where he breaks his bread and says, this is my body given for you, broken for you, laid down for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup and he blesses it and he says, as often as you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me. This is my blood poured out for you and for the sins of many. The question I want to really haunt us tonight is a question that Jesus asks, do you understand what I've done for you? If you do, you'll stop playing a religious game that it's now up to me to earn my salvation. If you do understand what Jesus has done for you, then the result of that is freedom in Christ. And the result of that is I'm going to make much of Jesus. The reason we don't make much of Jesus is we don't understand what he's done for us. Or we, or we do, but we look at the crucifixion, we look at the death of Jesus, and we say, look how, look how amazing I must be that God would do this for me. That God would give his son for me. Man, he must love me. Well, he does, but he didn't die. He didn't die for you because you were lovely. He died for you because he is lovely. Perhaps we have too high of a view of ourselves. Now you're awesome. But that's not why God. That's not why Christ died for you. He died for you because he's awesome. So the result of my salvation it should be worship of of God. Anytime I want to doubt whether or not God is pleased with me or delight in me, again, see Jesus. See the crucifixion. This is God screaming his desire to have relationship with you. Again, Jesus would ask, do you understand what I've done for you? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the birth, life, death, as we'll celebrate Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. God, thank you for uh, giving us yourself in the form of Jesus who laid down his life, God, so that we might be reconciled to you. God, I thank you that we're not under wrath. There'll never be a day that we face your wrath and praise you for it. So God, help us to live boldly for you. Well, we have to fear, and yet we just walk around not thinking that you're constantly condemning us, that, you're, that you don't delight in us, sometimes that you want nothing to do with us. God, would you help us to rebuke those thoughts in our heads? God, help us to not have a single thought about us that you don't have about us. God, would you renew our minds? Humble us when we walk arrogantly, thinking we don't need the crucifixion, we don't need the atonement, our good works, our good attitude, our good behavior, our morality will get us into heaven. God, forgive us and humble us when that's our mindset. But God, also, would you rebuke in us the mindset that we've sinned beyond what you can forgive in your hand. God, help us to remember what you have done for us. And I pray above everything. You are glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.